Um, but let's go ahead and start with prayer, if we could. Jim, would you do that for us? Sure. Thanks, brother. Lord, you are faithful and true. Thank you for uh, Paul's work in this world, the way you used him, help uh, us to become more like him, but mainly more like Jesus Christ. Uh, give us wisdom. Amen. All right, so we began a, a new study in Titus last week, um, and I have actually have sheets for you guys today, for whatever they're worth. Here you go. Okay, so um, this uh, first chapter is 16 verses long, and uh, maybe if somebody could read up through verse 9, somebody else, eight, uh, 10, sorry, to the end of the chapter. Let's do it that way. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect, and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, the faith and knowledge, resting in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of, before the beginning of time. And in his appointed season, he brought his word to life through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace in God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason I left your in Crete was so you might straighten out the work that was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And ever must be blameless, the husband of the one wife, and men whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Um, as a, an overseer entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not overbearing, or not um, uh, violent. violent, and not pursuing dishonest gain. Um, rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others with sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. That's excellent. Well done, Jim. Uh, uh, 10 through uh, 16. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silent because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of your own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be found in the faith, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths, or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but their actions, they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. All right, awesome. Thank you. All right, so we began this last week, but uh, let's look at some main questions uh, here. Question number one, what does this chapter show about the relationship between 
sound or healthy doctrine and godly living or piety. What's the relationship between those? It's a direct relationship. Okay, how is that, Jim? How is there a direct relationship between good doctrine and good living? You've got to know what, what good doctrine is to know what good living is. Absolutely. How can we define what a good life is apart from being told or taught uh, by Scripture? And so uh, vital to holy, holy life uh, is a good sound doctrine first. And I think he, uh, he establishes that right here at the beginning. Second question, why are godly leaders so essential to healthy church ministry? Why are godly leaders so essential to healthy church ministry? They're the ones that teach that sound doctrine so that others can learn. Okay, so by their faithful teaching of the word, it primes the pump for everything else. By the example of their lives, how they live, there's a lot of prohibitions given okay. in here. So it's not enough just to disseminate sound doctrine. You have to be a certain kind of person, and we're going to talk about the character traits of an elder. Um, so it is a combination of role modeling um, and also accurate teaching. Um, anyone else on why good, you know, godly leaders are essential for a good church? Andy, could I, could I say that I haven't been in this church since 1984. I saw what... Mm. That kind of teaching does to completely turn this church from where it was to where it is today. The entire staff got to teach Amen. Yeah, it's been one of the great privileges of my life is to just watch the word do its work in the context of a local church. Just teach it week after week and just let it work. You know, let it work. And what happens is people who don't want to hear it and don't have political control leave. They just leave. And then people who do want to hear it are attracted and they come. But if they're there long enough, they're not the same. They're transformed by it. That's what Romans says. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the same thing has happened in my life. It's been a great privilege to see it happen. But, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm in awe of the Word of God. I'm in awe of the Bible. Its combination of simplicity and complexity boggles my mind. How can it be both? Simple and complex. But you guys know what I mean, don't you? The Bible's simple, and the Bible is really not simple at all. <laughs> and that's just amazing to me, isn't it? It's just amazing. And to think all of this is as nothing compared to face-to-face -face intimate fellowship with God in heaven, where we're all going to get a quantum leap in our understanding of the nature of God. The Bible is, like I've said before, it's like baby talk compared to what heavenly experience will be. But it's still pretty awesome, isn't it? So, yeah, sound doctrine uh, transform. Let me, this question's not listed here, but why are healthy churches so essential to God's work in the world? Healthy churches, local churches, why are they so important? think that would be where um, a lot of evangelism would emanate from. Okay, a lot of evangelism comes from healthy churches. Good. Anyone else? Why are healthy churches so vital for God's work in the world? Well, God wants uh, a people who will uh, honor Him and worship Him and, and do His work. He's given us work to do that under that great commission. And uh, it takes a healthy church to do the work well. 
Yeah, all right, so this, we can never know this. Jim, go ahead. It's the way it's what God designed. It, it, the body of Christ is, is how Christ taught. Yeah. It should Sanctification. It's part of that world of worship. <coughs> we have a, a, a peace that they don't have. Yeah. Alan, what do you mean by that, sanctification? Well, you could think that justification is getting your car charged, but it doesn't stop there. And for us to grow in our faith and our character, we have to grow in doctrine. And that's best done in the confines of the health of the church. Amen. Herb, you were, gonna, you were saying something? It is corporate worship. And mm -hmm. He commands us to worship together. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we, we get a good meaning of Scripture so that we don't go out and misguide people. Amen. Clay, go ahead, brother. because uh, it's just hard to, it'd be hard to evaluate, but maybe just simply, anecdotally, what percentage of local churches do you think would be called healthy? Half? Worldwide, I mean worldwide. Half of all local churches are healthy. Five percent. So we've gone from 50 to five. All right. Um, anecdotally, you know, you've gotten out and about and all that. And I was talking, uh, we have a, a group that we're part of called the Pillar Network, and you know, these are like-minded churches. It's an associational principle kind of thing, but we, we gather with these pastors. And I was talking about the history of the, of the Southern Baptist Convention, and again, it's anecdotal. But I think most of us realize that of those 16,000 Southern Baptist churches, an overwhelming majority of them are not healthy. They are, they, they just never, and, and these are the evangelical ones. They never seem to get past the milk of Christ crucified and resurrected. They don't get much beyond that. And those are the ones that aren't liberal. I mean, the ones that are just rejecting the gospel aren't even worth talking about. It. I think they're just simply not churches. But even those that are, they don't walk through the depths of Scripture. They don't walk through the harder things. They just stay surfacy. And I don't really know why. I don't know historically why that has been. I don't know. I don't understand why they felt it was it was a hindrance even to go deep into passages and books of the Bible and try to understand everything God has said there. Um, but they did. They generally rejected it, and it's sad. 
But at any rate, um, all we can do is be faithful to us. If you look at like the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, what, what of those seven, which, how many of them would you say are healthy, slam dunk, great churches? Of the seven. Well, Philadelphia was a faithful church. I mean, he warned them, but they seemed faithful. The church at Smyrna was persecuted, and, and all he says to them is hang in there. You know, it's not going to go on forever. So I would say those two, he doesn't say anything negative about them. The other five, to varying degrees, he says pretty significant negative things about them. You're doing this, you're doing that, but I have this against you, tolerate Jezebel. So there's a sexual immorality problem. Or the church at Sardis, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I wouldn't call that healthy, friends. If you're dead, you're, you know, that's not healthy. The worst of them all is that church at Laodicea that's neither hot nor cold that Jesus wants to vomit out of his mouth. He says, you, you say, I've acquired wealth, I don't need anything, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I don't think wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked characterizes health. So they're not healthy. The church at Ephesus is amazing doctrinally. They're very energetic, but they have forsaken their first love. So I would say they're probably generally healthy, but they're being warned that they need, to, they need to turn back to their first love and get that fixed soon, or they're, they're going to lose their lampstand. All right, generally, anecdotally, as you look across uh, the churches that you know of in the New Testament, how many of them would you say are healthy? Would you say the Corinthian church was healthy? <laughs> I would say they were epically diseased. <laughs> you know, there were so many problems with that church, all right? Uh, how about the Galatian churches? That was a cluster of churches in a region. Um, the Judaizers, which Paul's going to mention here in this chapter. So he's pretty upset uh, at them. I think he's angry at them that they have so quickly turned their back on the one who called them. So I wouldn't call the Galatian churches healthy. The Philippian church seems healthy. Paul's very nice to them. He really likes them. I mean, they have a little bit of division problem. Yodi and Syntyche, they're having some issues. But I think they're a healthy church. The church of Ephesus, there doesn't seem to be any indication of specific disease, just the usual warnings that go on. So we could call them healthy. Um, but my point is made. I, I, this is not a guarantee that if there's a local church, it's going to be healthy. Not at all is it a guarantee. So you have to fight for it. And there's no guarantee if a church is healthy now, it'll be healthy in five years or ten years. Even when their pastor was taught by Paul. Yeah. Yeah, there's still going to be problems. You know, he says to that, the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said, I know that from your mids, in the mid middle of you, wolves will come up to not sparing the flock. They're going to come, false doctrine, et cetera. So you've got to have good sound doctrine. You've got to have good leaders, et cetera. That's what we're looking at here. Let me keep asking these questions. As you read the list of qualification for elders in this chapter, so that's in verses, I'm sorry, Timothy, go ahead. I think that God works through church to show his sovereign. Because of what you just said, there is no such thing as a healthy church. And regardless of how few or even you know, John Piper and the way he executes discipline, still flaws, no matter what. So do you think that God is defeating Satan with people like you and me just because it's got to tick him off? It's like, I'm going to beat you with my C team or my D team. You know, <laughs> these people are a mess. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> This quality, you know, I mean, uh, after you mentioned that last week, um, 
I kept thinking of Indian people that were taken to South Africa to be slaves. I mean, who takes the Indian slave? Because we are not good at picking cotton or doing sugarcane or any other work. Well, when I read your comment, I, I think that I, I'm not good at being a slave. Exactly. That was the whole point. Horrible ROI on buying something like us. And that parallel goes into the whole church model as to why it is used such inefficient, not ineffective, but inefficient model. Right, I would say the most convicting part of last week's Bible study was that whole thing on, on being a bond slave of God, you know, and realizing by the Holy Spirit that I am not, I think autonomously. I think in terms of freedom. I think in terms of what I want to do with my time, energy, money. And I wondered if I had, if I had a month or even a year in which God gave me like a B-plus grade at being a slave, I wonder what that year would be like. You know, I wonder how faithful I would be. I wonder what it'd be like in my marriage, my parenting, my pastoring. If I were more nearly sold out to just doing what the master wanted and not wondering whether it's what I wanted. Does that make sense? If I could get to that point, how much fruit would come in my life? So anyway, I just think Titus is part of the pastoral epistle, epistles. Therefore, it's church-based. It's a church kind of book. Titus, like First and Second Timothy, it's a church-based book, and we have to look at this. Um, this is the work God is doing. It's not the only thing he's doing, because I do think mission agencies and relief agencies and Christian you know, groups that get together around a topic, <laughs> around an issue, like Wycliffe Bible Translators, and like that, that's a good thing. God can do work with that. Uh, Campus Crusade for Christ crew, you know, he'll do those things, and I, I believe in that. I believe in parachurch groups, Durham Rescue Mission, you know, there'll be people who do that. But his, his home base is that local church, his local churches. And Satan knows it too, and he's going to hammer those churches. He's going to come after them. He's going to attack them. He's going to make things difficult. That's why it's, it goes on. All right, final main question. Uh, all right, I, I started to ask this. As you read the list of qualification for elders, one of the two key passages, uh, first, uh, uh, Titus uh, 1, 5 through 9, and First Timothy 3, 1 through 7, these are the key passages. What themes emerge? Just as you look at that, an elder must be blameless, husband of one wife, you know, all of that. What do you get out of that as you read it? So, again. Verse 9. Go ahead, read it. It says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that you may be able to exhort sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Okay, very, very good. Rick, what did you say? Yeah, the, the theme to me would be that he's calling people who have self-control. Yeah, I, th I, I came across, as I was planning or working on this sheet today, I think self-control, like he's not given to violent outbursts, he's not overbearing, you know, he's, he's somebody whose passions are kept under control. He's not given to drunkenness. He's not, you know, he's a self-controlled man. What is that? What is that attribute? How do you understand self-control? Well, how about, in, in the abstract, somebody who's following a system of values of some type and is committed to them to the degree that he's not overcome by his emotions or other desires to break the uh, tenets. I love what you said. So he's got some commitments he's made. There's certain patterns he follows. He's not going to deviate from them, even though we all have the seeds of our own destruction within in our lusts. The lusts are drives that push normal desires, good desires that God gave, beyond boundaries that God set up. Isn't that, isn't that what the flesh does? 
It's not just eating, it's gluttony. It's not just drinking, it's drunkenness. It's not marital relations, it's adultery and fornication and looking lustfully at other women. You know, it takes the normal drives that God made, and they're good, and pushes them beyond boundaries. The self-controlled man doesn't let that happen. He's still got the lusts, he's still got the drives, but they're under control by the power of the Spirit. Not perfect, but he's able to do that, which I think may be what blameless means. I think that's what blameless means. We'll talk about all that. But just that there are these qualifications, what does that teach you? That there's a filter, a set of filters that candidates have to go through. Chris, what do you get out of that? These filtering words. Um, to me, it's that God has a standard, and our, our nature is to rebel against the standard and not live up to the standard, to feed our own wants and the self-control and everything else is just a, and blamelessness. Blame for what? You, you basically have to apply the standard that God has set here, and, and if you don't, um, you're going to come up short. Now, we all do come up short anyway, and we know that, but the, this sense of continual trying is, is important to God. So Chris and Lynn, I, I don't know you guys, Jack, you remember when I came here, one of the early controversies I had was um, when I, I wanted deacon candidates to give a testimony of how they came to faith in Christ and then a second statement of what God was doing in their lives now. That's all. They had to get up in front of the church on a Sunday evening, not a Sunday morning, but a Sunday evening, and just do that. And there was so much caterwauling about that. Um, and, and it was just whatever. Because before that, what was the filter for deacon candidates? Popularity contest. But the filter. You just had to have been here as a member for two years and want to serve. That was it. That was the filter for the non-staff leadership of our church. And that's what the deacons were at that point. There were 24 of them in three classes of eight. And as the eight would rotate off, there would be an election for the next eight. And there was no filtering. None. And these were the ones who were, in our Constitution bylaws, to aid the pastor in assisting the mission of the church. So they were, they were leaders, but there was no filter. When I said, let's have a rudimentary filter, right? They needed to be Christians, and they needed to be kind of walking like Christians recently. Kind of. I thought, let's start there. You know, and, and it was just whatever. First of all, there was the whole separation of powers problem. They thought I was meddling, like when a president does something that's assigned to the Congress or to the Supreme Court, right? That's a big deal constitutionally in our, in our form of government. So that the senior pastor would meddle in any way, shape, or form in deacon elections was seen to be a problem. But I felt reading 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the filtering of leaders by biblical criteria, was essential to the health of the church. Even though I knew we hadn't worked out the difference between deacons and elders yet, I wouldn't have chosen that sequence, but we, we started with, let's start with accepting a not great definition of deacons. We'll just get to that later. But let's just have a rudimentary filter so that leaders have to be evaluated and match up with it. Does that make sense? But this is not rudimentary is it? First, first Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are not rudimentary. An elder must be blameless. And then this whole list, right? It's pretty significant. All right, so let's, let's keep going. Let me finish these questions. Part of that, though, uh, the, 
David and Solomon, and then you know lots of lots of lives. So it was a departure in some way from Old Testament Jewish living to have to be the husband of the one wife. I mean, just saying, that sounds normal to us, but anyway, I just had to, that's the other part that was a little... Yeah, it was it was a hard a hard journey for us to get through all that. Um, but now, um, we have a very very careful filtering process of elders. The elders do, and uh, it's very it, it, we take these words very seriously. And not just filtering to get in the office, but what do they say about the life we live once we have become elders? It, it's all of it is important. Let's uh, ask the fourth question: How does Paul Paul's characterization of the Cretans in this chapter? <laughs> Show the need for healthy churches led by godly leaders. So, how does he talk about the Cretans here? Not too good. They're always mild liars. Always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So that's the field that they're trying to reach with the gospel. It's like, oh my goodness. Well, I think it's interesting. Does Paul say that himself? No. Not directly. But he quotes, uh, he quotes somebody. One of their own prophets have said this about them. But he stamped it as true, though. Yeah, he's quoting it. So, you know, he's like, look, I, hey, I didn't say it. You guys said it. Yeah, but you're quoting it. All right. But, yeah, it's bad. Always they're, uh, you know, always evil brutes, lazy gluttons. You know, that's who they are. Why does that characterization of the target audience, the, the field, show the need for godly leaders in healthy churches? by identifying them, then he goes on to tell them to say that they must be rebuked. Okay. So the Cretans are going to be church members, right? Are they going to be bringing this baggage into the church? Yes, they are. That's why they're coming to church, to get, get cured of this. So that when they've been in the church for five years, they will not be liars, evil brutes, and, and lazy gluttons. We want, to, we want better than that for them. So come to church and you'll get cured of that. All right? But what about the elders? Are they going to be Cretans too? Well, yeah. Where do you think he's going to get them from? The reason I left you in Crete was that you should find some of these evil brutes and lazy gluttons and choose them to be elders. Very interesting. So at any rate, that's what he says. That's the pool, the pool of talent you're working with. Okay? That's what you're dealing with. But hey, let's be honest. This is nothing, this short list here is nothing compared to Romans 3. Romans 3 says, there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away, they've together become worthless, there is no one who does good, not even one, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. Your elders will come from that group. I mean, once they've been transformed by the gospel. But that's where we start. That's why the gospel's needed. That's what salvation's about, is we're dealing with wickedness and evil and sin. So anyway, those are the main questions. All right, let's, uh, let's look at verses 1 through 4 and walk through it. We started it last week, I know, uh, but I didn't have a sheet, so that didn't count, all right? So now we got a sheet, and uh, it's going to count. <laughs> Kidding. All right, Paul, a servant, of, a bondservant of God, an apostle of, of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge, resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, 
promise before the beginning of time and at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus. All right. That's kind of a heavy intro to a friend of his. All right. Now we talked about this last time. Why such dense doctrine in the greeting? I mean, he's talking to his friend, but is he really talking to his friend? He's talking to the church as well. He's, I mean, here he's contrasting God who does not lie with Greetings who lie all the time. Um, and he knows that Titus is to instruct. He's going to be using this as an instruction tool. So the answer is it's both hands, not either or. He is talking to Titus, but Titus had already, already knew these things. I mean, if he, is, if he is Paul's true son in the faith, that means Paul poured into him. Paul discipled him. So these aren't going to be new themes for Titus. But also keep in mind, the scripture is written for a vast, immeasurable audience. The Holy Spirit knows that. The Holy Spirit knew we would be gathering today to study these words. Uh, he knew that some Anabaptist church in the 16th century gathered to study these same words. Some Puritan church in, near Oxford gathered in the 17th century to study these same words, right? After George Whitfield left town and some church was started, they studied these words. This, this, is what, this is for a huge audience. The Holy Spirit knew that. And he moved Paul to write this heavy introduction so that we would understand the gospel ministry. We would understand the things he talks about here. So first, we talked about bondservant or slave of God. I'm not going to say any more about that. I would just say... It's, it's like the lasting challenge of my life, you know, immediate challenge is to be a better slave than I've been. To, to think less autonomously about my time, energy, money. Does that make sense? To ask God what he wants me to do more. All right, and then an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness or accords with godliness. So what does the word for mean for you in verse one? I'm a bond slave and an apostle for the faith of God's elect. It's like a stated purpose. Purpose, yes, that's right. So the reason I'm a slave of God and the reason I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ is for the faith of God's elect. In other words, that God's elect may have faith because of me. And I think that's true. I mean, we have a role to play in other people, so-called coming to faith, all right, coming to faith. How can they call on the one they have not believed in, and how can they, what, believe in someone they have not heard of? So the proclamation of the truth, the, the, the gospel, in the elect, unconverted elect, produces faith. Now, only Holy Spirit can give faith. We can't do that. But that's why I'm in the business. That's what Paul's saying. That's why I'm a slave of God. That's why I'm an apostle. I want to see the, uh, God's elect coming to faith. But is that the end of it? Now they've come to faith and they're all set? No, he says the knowledge of the truth that accords with or leads to godliness. And in that sense, I think we're talking about the next stage of salvation. From justification, coming to faith, to sanctification, which is godliness, growth in godliness. So that's why I'm here. So what does that tell you about the gospel ministry? Paul has a very clear sense of his calling here, right? What do you learn about gospel ministry? What could Titus learn about gospel ministry here? It's a long, continual process. Okay. So in this pool of unconverted Cretans, 
There are going to be some elect. And Titus, your job is to do for them what my general job is. Bring some of them to faith and then teach them the truth so they come to godliness. And godliness means they will not be liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons anymore. That's, I think, what he's getting at. Does that make sense? So this is going to be Titus's job description as well. And it's mine as a pastor as well. So the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Is there, yeah, go ahead, Timothy. Again, the word truth you mentioned there, I'm just noticing in, in verse 2, he talks about God who never lies. Mm-hmm. And then contrast with truth and just like Always lies. So is this lies and truth sort of a thin theme in Titus? I hadn't noticed that before, but it just stands out there. Mm. Powerful. Yeah, the contrast between a God who cannot, not, not only he does not lie, he cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And um, the Cretans, they are liars. It's a a very strong contrast. Now, is there a direct connection between knowledge of the truth and godliness? Yes. Okay. Everyone who knows the truth will be godly. No. Okay. So it's like, I didn't ask the question well. All right. There is not a guarantee that if you know the truth, you will be godly. Jesus put it in two steps. If you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Does that make sense? So you can know things and not do them, but you can't do them if you don't know them. Does that make sense? So he's saying the knowledge of the truth tends toward godliness, but it doesn't guarantee it. That's what he's getting at. All right, then he he doubles down on it in verse 2. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God who does not lie dot 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 so what is the connection between faith knowledge and hope faith knowledge and hope well I think uh, originally we were talking about a healthy church if there's not the knowledge of truth then the church can't be healthy and if the church is not healthy then that growth in salvation can't be there, and the elect are not going to be properly pursued and taught the gospel. So the whole thing is, is has to be taught knowledge, truth, elect, eternal life. If we don't have knowledge, we don't have hope. We don't have God in the world. So we have to understand what hope is. And a key clue is in Romans 8, who hopes for what he already has? So by definition, hope has to do with things you don't have yet. It's something in the future. Hope is future-oriented. All right? And he says it's hope of eternal life. So there's an aspect of eternal life we can have right now. Once you come to faith in Christ, you have crossed over from death to life. You are alive. But there's an aspect of eternal life that you don't have yet. What we call glorification, seeing God face to face is coming. And we need to be filled with hope. What is hope? A feeling or a sense that those good things are definitely going to happen. It's more than just optimism. All right? How would you, care, how would you differentiate between a Christian hope and a, an optimism or a worldly optimism? Christian hope based on God's word and that's the final point. Okay, so it's based on promises 
from a God who cannot lie. Whereas worldly hope, what's that based on? Sand. Sand, okay. I think it's based on what you want to happen, right? Isn't that, I mean, isn't that a worldly hope? What do you want to happen? I want my team to win the championship. Doesn't mean they will. That's what you're hoping for. All right, Christian hope is something that is guaranteed in the future. And you're like, well, how could anything be guaranteed in the future? Well, it has to do with the nature of God. God being an eternal being, meaning he's above time. Secondly, God being a sovereign being in that he gets to decree what will happen or what won't. And then God being a loving being, he's communicated good things to us called promises. By the way, what does that mean, a promise? Okay, so a promise is something that will happen. Amen. So promise has to do with future, just like hope. God telling in it, and promise we would use generally for good things, not bad. We would use the word threaten for something that's bad, a warning. So promise is a good thing in the future that God said will happen. There are two types of promises that God makes to people. Uh, the first is conditional promises, and the second are unconditional promises. All right? So how would you differentiate between a conditional promise and an unconditional promise? One has partly to do with us, the other is exclusively God. Okay. So let's think of a very good example of an unconditional promise. After the flood... God put a rainbow in the sky, and it was a marker concerning what? What was God saying by that? He'll never flood the entire earth again. Is that a conditional or unconditional promise? It's unconditional. We don't need to do or not do anything. All right, and there are many other examples of unconditional promises. And then there are conditional promises. Like, if you obey me and you're faithful to me, then I will be your God, you'll be my people, and you get to stay in the promised land. Let's do that, okay? If you don't, I'll kick you out. So that would be a conditional promise, exactly. So is the gospel unconditional or conditional? I say it's conditional. Okay. Because it does depend on some action on our part, even though it's ordained by God. Okay. Not an easy question to answer. I don't know the answer to that. Um, well, if Rick said it, I think I'm, all, I'm good with it. We'll, we'll, yeah. It's complex because we are commanded to repent and believe. We also know that God is able to work repentance and faith in us effectively. And so, at any rate, that's the promise. And, and, and Paul's clearly leaning toward a sense of unconditionality here because he's banking on the character of God. God, it's, it's resting on a hope which God who cannot lie promised. And Romans 4 uses the language, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace, it may be guaranteed. So whether it's conditional or not, it's guaranteed. So if we need to meet certain conditions, which I think we do, we will meet them. So there's guarantee, even if it is conditional to some degree, guarantee. And so there's this sense of hope. Now, fundamentally, how important is hope in life? 
Why is hope important in life? It's everything. <clears throat> Why is that? It's everything that we live by. The second law of thermodynamics. Okay. <laughs> I have, I've left my engineering behind here. I actually got a D in thermodynamics at MIT. I worked hard for that D. It was not out of laziness, future people that are watching this thing. I worked hard. I've worked harder for that D than anything I ever worked in my life. It's the only one I ever got. <laughs> it's the only D I ever got. But I, I was proud of that D, all right? I worked for that, and I didn't get an F, all right? So at any rate, so you were saying, second law of thermodynamics, go ahead. Everything, everything, Satan lives and exists here, mm -hmm. and evil is, is all around us. Left to our own devices, to our own set of likes and dislikes, we're doomed. Christ alone and God, through Christ, gives us that ultimate hope mm -hmm. and a promise that uh, we can count on. Yeah, if you look at the alternative hope, if you have no hope, you are, that's despair. I mean, it's literally despair. Um, maybe you don't have no hope, but you're mostly characterized by no hope. I would call that depression. All right. People need to sense that they're going towards something good that this whole thing's gonna work out, that they're heading toward something beneficial and all that. Very, very hard to act if you don't. It's really, really hard. You know, imagine that you are convinced you're going to lose, you're on a team that's going to lose. It's very hard to train, it's hard to listen to the coach, it's hard to go out and play the game. I mean, hope is vital to the human experience. It just is. And to be hopeless is it's one of the worst states you could ever be in ever all right so fundamentally hope is is vital just for human beings but it's essential to christianity we believe as christians all of our best things are yet to come all of them however good has already happened it's as nothing compared to what's still yet to come we're going to die like the patriarchs not having received the best promises we're going to die that way that's why the author writes the Hebrews 11 to give us encouragement. You're going to die not having received the things promised. You're not going to have your resurrection body. You're not going to be in the new heaven, new earth, or in the new Jerusalem. You're, you're going to die from some disease or injury under the last enemy, death. You're going to die in apparent failure. But it's not true because you know you're going to die in hope. You're going to die well. You're going to die believing the best is yet to come because you believe in resurrection. How do you know that, Jack? Amen. You believe the promise. So it's a hope. Right? We die in hope believing the promises. So that's what he says. God, all right, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. So resting, hope is foundational, hope is vital. I would say this, and I said this to the pastors yesterday at the, at the uh, Pillar Network. I, I zeroed in on one verse, Romans 15, 13, which I taught in the BFL class as well. Um, Romans 15:13. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I said, if you're pastors, your job is to overflow with hope. So what that means is to some degree, this is a little bit of a crude image, but basically church is like a gas station or filling station where people who are empty come to fill up their tank. And the tank is hope. And so you get beat up by your sin and by the world and by disease and by struggles in the week and you come back and get filled up with hope again. 
right? It's not the only thing that happens, but it needs to happen, right? You come and you hear the word preached, and it's like, all right, I'm renewed. I have hope. I can face the problems I'm facing. I know that God's at work in my life. If I walk through the shadow of the valley, the valley of the shadow of death, he's going to walk with me. I know that. I know that the best is yet to come. You get replenished. Well, how? By, being, by pastors being, by, by pastors overflowing with hope. The Greek word is parasuo. We're going we're gonna to overflow with hope. It links very strongly to me in John 7, 37 and 39, Jesus it says, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, if you're empty, come and I'll fill you. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Not to him, from him. So what does that mean? The rhythm is, if I'm thirsty, I go to Jesus as a pastor. I get filled up. And then I get to be streams of living water to other people. Basically, as a pipe, conduit. Jesus is the one filling them. So therefore, my job is to fill people up with hope. Fill people up with joy. Chris. That's what Paul is charging Titus with. Yeah. He's saying, teach them. Romans 5. Um, character produces hope. It's developed in the person, and he's saying, Titus, you go out and you develop these liars, these lazy gluttons, these um, messes into hopeful people who can share that hope with others. Amen. It's developed. So good. So local church needs to be many things, but one of them is it needs to be a filling station with hope, for hope. You get filled up based on the word of God. Based on the word of God. because that's And if you look at it, it says, A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised. He promised eternal life. So you should be filled with hope because God cannot lie. Now that's vital. Why, why is it? It says here God does not lie. In Hebrews it says it is impossible for God to lie. Why is that true? Why is it impossible for God to lie? Because his nature is the way it is, and that is against his nature. All right, so 1 John 1, 5. It's contradictory. Right, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. So we could also say similarly, God is truth, and in him there is no lie. He cannot lie. It's impossible. He just tells, tells the truth. All right, Jesus did that too. High priest stands up because they can't get their witnesses to agree, and he says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Not necessary because he didn't know he was talking to you. You don't need to charge Jesus with oath. doesn't matter. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Answer, I am. And in the future, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then he tears his clothes. But Jesus wasn't going to lie. He couldn't lie. It's impossible for Jesus to lie. So God cannot lie. He does not lie. He made a promise of eternal life. When did he make it? Before the ages began. Before the ages began. Now, that's a little odd. You say, well, what's odd about it? Pastor, it's right here in the Bible. Well, all right, let's put it this way. There's work to be done on the concept, so let's work on the concept. What is a promise? A pledge. It's made from one who has the ability to make it to an audience. Who is the audience before the ages began? God made it to himself? The audience was Basically, it's a promise he is pl 
planning on making to an audience when the right time comes. It's an intertrinitarian commitment of how they're going to deal with the sin problem before there even was a sin problem. But he's not making the promise to Jesus. If you look at the rest of the verse, what does it say? God, who cannot lie, promised before the beginning of time, before the ages began. Keep reading. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. You see that? At the proper time he manifested the promise. Or we could simply say, made the promise. I mean, to make a promise is to articulate it. All right? You say to your six-year-old, this Saturday I'm going to take you out for ice cream. All right? The promise does her no good at all until you make it. She didn't know about it. If you had an internal commitment to take her to ice cream, that's a good thing, but she knows nothing about it. She can't get happy about it or anticipate it. She can't be filled with hope about the ice cream she's going to get on Saturday. But once you say it, you better keep it. But you make the promise by articulating it. You speak it. So what does he say? The promise was, the commitment to the promise was made in the mind of the eternal God before ages began. But he articulated the promise at the right time. Brought his word to light. He brought it to light. And he did it progressively. There's a dimmer switch of the promise. Like the, uh, you know, the statement made about, about the serpent, you know, you will crush his head and he will, you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. Is that part of the promise that Satan's head will be crushed? Definitely. Is that a clear promise? Not as clear as we have now. I mean, which is, which is clearer, all right? He, say, saying to a talking snake in the garden, you know, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You will bru bruise his, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Or, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Which of those two would you say is clearer? Definitely the second one's clearer. So as time went on, God, God got clearer and clearer and clearer on this promise of eternal life. That's part of the ministry of the word. Does that make sense? By the time the Old Testament canon was complete, everything was need, that was needed was there. I mean, in the prophets and Isaiah, I mean, you got it all there. New Testament made some other things a little clearer, but it, it was all there. So God, who cannot lie, promised eternal life before the ages began. Now, what is the significance, apart from the weirdness of there being no one to whom he made the promise before the ages began, but he's basically saying within himself he's going to make the promise. All right, aside from that, but what impact is there in your heart that he made the promise before the ages began? The timelessness of this whole thing. Chris, what do you get out of that? The fact that this was made before time began. He knows the future. Mm -hmm. Eternality. God realized, not realized, already knew what he was going to do and commit. There's a commitment here um, in this promise to us who were at that time unrealized, not even dirt at that point. Amazing. So that gives us a sense of security, doesn't it? There's a, an absolute timelessness to this promise, right? It stands above the unfolding time. It was made, in the language of Romans 9, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. Before anyone was born or had done anything good or bad, the promise of eternal life was made. This is a timeless commitment God has made within himself and then paid out to us at a, at a certain point, which gives us security. It's like an explanation for, for all time. 
know, who brought this word to life out of preaching, trust in me, means he, that he could reveal it. He helps us understand the complexity of God in, in the time uh, what's been planned for all time. Yeah, here's the thing, guys. Um, I believe in teaching the full counsel of God's word, and that includes foreknowledge, predestination, election, all those hard doctrines. I know they're not always popular, but God wants us to know them. It's not just one or two verses. There's actually dozens of verses in this regard. And he wants us to have that rock-solid assurance that God worked all of this out, and that's anthropomorphic language, but he worked all of this out before time began. And it's not contingent on us. All right, go ahead, Lynn. I, I think here, too, that, that the verse that tells us he has a plan, hope, <coughs> The great inheritance stored up for us in heaven, and that's our hope. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, Ted. God's plan in eternity mm-hmm. included making it, I think, straightforward for us. Time was a part of the creation. Time didn't exist before; it won't exist in the future. He created time as as a means by which he can then carry out this plan, which was done before. And time gave us a timeline and. It gave us an ability, to, I think, in our own little simple minds to understand and grasp. Yeah, you know what's really cool here? Um, this promise is more important than time. It's more important than the sequence of events or anything. At, uh, this is a timeless commitment. It's above everything in history. Let me show you something. This is really interesting. Look at Romans chapter 8. It's really cool. I am so thrilled I went back to Romans. I was so devastated by Ezekiel. I thought I will never be able to memorize a book of the Bible again. I think my brain has been turned to hamburger by Ezekiel and the cubits and the visionary temple and all that. And it's like, I think I'm, I'm done. I'm retiring from memorizing. But I went back to Romans, which I'd memorized years ago, and it came back very nicely. So I felt very happy about that. But I'm going over Romans basically every day, and it's just amazing. But look at Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8. Verses 38, 39. It's just phenomenal verses. Romans 8, 38, and 39. Someone read that. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so there's two words that you read in there that are relevant to our study. Present and future. So he's saying that whole list of things cannot separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. He includes angels and demons. He includes powers and all that. But he includes two interesting time-based words. Present and future. Present and future cannot separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That present cannot separate us from the love of God and future cannot separate us from the love of God. On the constraints of time. There's nothing, there is nothing that can happen on the surface of the earth or in the spiritual realms. In the present, like today, or any time in the future that will sever that love relationship which is saving. It's not just, oh, I still love you, but I have to send you to hell. Don't think that. That's foolishness. But it's the electing, sovereign, saving love of God given to us in Christ. Nothing in the present and nothing in the future can stop it. 
And that's pretty encouraging. And why? Because God made this promise before time began. It's a timeless thing. It's pretty awesome. All right, let's uh, finish Titus uh, 1, 1 through 4 and we'll be done. All right, so this promise was made within God and at the appointed time was brought to light. The promise was brought to light as one translation, brought his word to light. What does that mean? The promise was brought to light by the preaching entrusted to me. Chris, what do you think? When I think of the word brought to light, I think it's illuminated, and I think of that being one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is he just, he chose to make it known to us at that time. Amen. And so the, even the verse I quoted earlier from, uh, from John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. That's a promise of eternal life. And that is a preaching entrusted to Paul. Now, I know that's in John 11, but Paul might have known that. He knew John. He met John. He's one of the pillars of the church there in, in Jerusalem, and he probably got that. He said, John probably said, Brother Paul, when you go out there and preach to those Gentiles, tell them this one. It's a good verse. I am the resurrection and the life. I mean, the Gospel of John hadn't been written yet. It would be pretty cool to say that. If you believe in Jesus, you'll live even if you die. That's eternal life. Death doesn't end your existence. God raised Jesus from the dead and he's going to raise you up too. So that's the promise that God made before time began, but now he made it light. He, made, he brought it to light by the preaching entrusted to me. And as you said, also the preaching that will be entrusted to Titus. Brought it into fruition. I didn't hear you, I'm sorry. Brought it into fruition. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So light is just being aware of, of the promise. Like, I want you to know God has made this promise. And then, as you said, Clay, fruit. I'm sorry. That's one, of the, yeah. that's one of the first things that we talked about in our study of the Gospel of John this year is be, whether it's better to be in darkness or in light. And uh, I highlighted that quite a bit. Amen. So just to finish this last thought in verse 3, the preaching was entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So he sent me to do this work. He, he told me, go preach. Preach to the nations. It was entrusted to me. And God, our Savior, is in that. So pretty awesome. All right, three verses of Titus. We're well on our way in the same kind of pace that we always seem to, seem to have. This will take two and a half years. I don't know how long it's going to take. It's a short book, but anyway. Jason, would you mind closing in prayer, brother? Thanks. Father, thank you for your word, which is truly living and active. God, and I pray that as you speak to our hearts through your word, that you would guide us as we go into the world for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.